On December 5th of this past year, uh, Liz McGill, who was the then president of the University of Pennsylvania, was called before Congress along with some others to answer some questions about charges uh, that the University of Pennsylvania and the leadership there had not done enough uh, to fight against anti-Semitism. Uh, if you saw any part of that interview, you might know that uh, Liz McGill's answers to the questions she were, was asked were not very good. Afterwards, she provided a sort of video clarification of things she was trying to say, but no apology. Contrast that with about a week and a half ago, Mark Zuckerberg, who is the CEO of Meta Corporation and some others uh, who are involved in social media, were also called before Congress and asked to sort of testify with regards to the fact that social media seems to be more and more, or at least we're discovering, how it's more and more harmful to teenagers. And so uh, various CEOs were asked about their culpability in uh, you know, designing algorithms that are meant to be addictive and those sorts of things. And at a key moment uh, when pressed, Mark Zuckerberg was sort of given the opportunity to know whether or not he wanted to apologize to the people that were there, especially those who had lost loved ones to uh, suicide or other uh, means in which social media had caused such great problems. And he did. He took that opportunity to stand up, to turn around, and to face those uh, for whom had experienced such tragedy. And he apologized, sort of. <laughs> he at least acknowledged that what they had been through, no one should ever have to go through. Evan Spiegel, the CEO of Snapchat, actually did a much better job of actually apologizing and acknowledged that they had some responsibility for doing more than they actually had done. But in either case, both Mark Zuckerberg and Evan Spiegel and others, uh, their engagement just felt better than Liz McGill's. And I think that's the power of confession. Now I say confession and not repentance because confession is just a portion of repentance and nothing that happened in the congressional hearings uh, with the leaders of the social media companies felt to me like repentance. What's the difference between confession and repentance? Well, let me tell you another illustration that might make it more clear. Last week, you might have picked up during our time of confession that there was a very personal sort of example. When I was sort of confessing anger at a frustration at some home improvement project we were doing with the replacement of some windows. Back in August, the window replacement people, salespeople came by and uh, they sold us some windows uh, to replace five windows in our house. We could only afford to replace five of them. Uh, and so we uh, agreed to get these windows replaced. It was August, and it said, they said it was going to take them a number of months after they had sold them to us uh, to get them manufactured. So they were about four-month backlog. Okay, that's fine. So in December, they showed up with our five windows, uh, four of which they had manufactured in the wrong color. The one they manufactured correctly, uh, they brought the wrong color wrap for the outside of the window. So they installed the one window that was manufactured correctly with the wrong wrap, and then they said they're going to have to send the other four back to the factory and get them rebuilt. So another two months go by until just a couple of weeks ago when they show up again with the four windows that are now in the right color, but all four of those also have the wrong color wrap to go around them. Well, they said, well, we'll install it with the wrong color wrap, and then we'll try to fix this later. 
So one of the ones they installed on the inside, I went up to look at it after they were done, and I was like, you used two different color caulk, two different colors of caulk on the inside of the window. Like the bottom half is bright white, and the top half is ivory. I was like, okay. So the next day, I called the customer service people, and literally 30 minutes, you know how this goes. You're getting bounced around on the phone chain. The call got dropped at least three times. And you know, you go, and by the point, you have the menu system memorized one, two, four, five, nine, four, five, nine, oh, six. You know, you just punch them all in as fast as possible. Well, I finally got to talk to a live person, and this is just my perspective. I didn't find her to be super helpful. <laughs> So I explained, I tried, I prayed, Lord, please help me to be gentle. So I tried to explain my problem. I went through the whole thing. She didn't seem very empathetic to me. She just simply said, well, I will send an email. Like, no, 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 no. I want to talk to somebody. They're like, nope, I'm going to send an email. I'm like, to who? She's like, I can't tell you. Well, when will they get, can't tell you. When will I, no, can't tell you. So we got done. And my inner dialogue after we were done was probably not very edifying. <laughs> And so I confessed that to all of you last week, the sort of thoughts of anger and frustration as I worked out what I'd really have liked to have said to her, uh, sort of on the phone. And I could feel just sort of the, just the anger. Well, contrast that with about a few hours later, I got a call from Tony, uh, also from the window replacement company. He didn't know anything about my call to customer service, but what had happened is the installers who came, who were very nice, it wasn't really their fault, they showed up with the wrong stuff, they had called their boss and said, hey, look, this didn't go very well. And so Tony called me, and he was uh, A, super apologetic. He confessed, hey, look, we're so sorry. He said, hey, uh, we will uh, come, and we'll fix the caulk, of course, and we will rewrap all the windows in your house, even the ones we didn't install in the same color, so they all match on the outside. Uh, and then he agreed, uh, he was like, and we won't charge you uh, yet for the windows, because we're sort of... You have to wait till they're, he's like, but once they're installed, you technically have to start paying for them. But we'll delay this until we get everything right. Well, I hung up the phone with Tony and I felt fantastic. I actually had a higher opinion of Tony and the company than I would have had, I think, if they hadn't messed up at all in the first place. That's the power of repentance, not just confession, not just, it is important to acknowledge that you're sorry but actually trying to make right what was wrong. There's power in repentance. And this morning, Jesus wants to remind us from his word that there's power in repentance. So let me invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 21. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you don't have one on your phone that you want to use, uh, there's a one in the rack in front of you. It looks like this. If you use one of these Bibles, Matthew 21 is page 802. Page 802. Jesus has a parable that he wants to share with us today. A parable is a, a made-up story that's designed to teach an important point. You may remember that last week, uh, we talked about the power of confession and repentance to help us be able to see where God is at work. And one of the reasons why we might not see God at work, especially in February when it feels sort of spiritually dark uh, and difficult, 
is because we haven't yet made right what we've done wrong before God. Well, the story was of the religious leaders and they rejected Jesus' invitation for them to be able to confess. And so while we had an inkling of the power of confession and repentance, we didn't actually get to see it play out because the religious leaders didn't repent. So it's no surprise that Jesus follows immediately that story with their rejection of the opportunity to repent with a story that emphasizes the positive aspects when we choose to embrace repentance. So we're gonna begin reading in verse 28 of Matthew 21. So second column all the way down in the church Bibles where it says the parable of the two sons. This is Jesus speaking. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. It's a really beautiful parable. It's very short, it's pretty understandable. But let me make just five observations about the parable to just kind of bring out some of the things we might not notice immediately upon reading it. Number one, and this might be the most important point, I want you to notice that there is no third son who does everything right from the beginning. Okay, remember this is a parable and so Jesus gets to make up the story. And he's not chosen to include son number three who when asked immediately obeys and joyfully goes into the vineyard. There is no son like that in this story. I take great comfort in that. I was talking to somebody recently who had for years delayed getting baptized. And this person had just put it off and not done it and finally felt convicted that yes, this was something God was commanding them to do, made the choice to get baptized, and then said, I'm embarrassed that it took me so long to get here. The response of this passage and Jesus to that person is you don't have anything to be embarrassed about. There's no third child who does everything right from the beginning. The reason Jesus doesn't put that character in the story is because that character doesn't exist. The only person who's ever done everything right from the beginning is Jesus. And he's the one telling the story. And so it doesn't matter that it might have taken this person years to get to the point of getting baptized. There's no reason to be embarrassed about not living up to something that doesn't exist. And so if you're a person who thinks, man, it's taken me a long time to get to the point of obeying. The purpose of this parable is, if that's you, regardless of how long it took you to get to this point, that's the person being commended in the story. And if that's you, then Jesus is commending you today. There's no hypothetical other person that you just fell short of that standard today. 
if you choose to obey. Jesus is commending that. Second, what's going on in this passage are commands from the dad to the kid, to the kids. That's important because sometimes you can hear this passage and kind of think about it in our modern context and sort of think about, well, this is kind of like a dad who's going to go out and do some yard work and he stops by his two kids' bedrooms and says, hey, could you come join me and do some yard work if you get a chance? And the one's like, no, 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 I'm too busy. I'm not going to be able to do that. And then later on decides, yeah, I could probably help my dad out. And the other's like, yeah, sure, I'll be out there and then gets busy and doesn't do it. That's the way we might feel this story, but that's not the way it's written. The way it's written is is the dad says, go work in the vineyard today. It's a command. It's not an option. And the point is, is this passage applies to the fact that God does command us to do things. God commands us, be merciful to those who doubt. God commands us, submit to those who are in leadership over you at work or at school. God commands us, be kind to those who persecute you. Now, because God is patient, and because God does not usually sort of strike us down the moment we don't do this, we can sort of think, well, maybe these are just suggestions. But they're not. These are commands given from God to us. And the response is either you're going to hear them and choose to obey, or you're not going to obey. The first son says, no, I'm not obeying, but then does. The second son says, yeah, I'll obey, but then doesn't. Third observation, in the way the first son gives his response, there's something very cool that's masked a little bit in the English translation. It says in verse 29, I will not, he answered, that's the first son, but later he changed his mind and went. Now you can translate later he changed his mind and went so that it sounds like two verbs, which is fine, But what you actually have is a participle and a verb, which means that the changed his mind part is not a separate activity. It's connected to the he went part. And the purpose of this little grammatical exercise is to tell you that we probably could translate this changing his mind, he went, or because he changed his mind, he went. And the point is, Jesus has tied repentance with a change of behavior tightly together. The idea is not that he sort of changed his mind, went and said he was sorry to his father, and then decided to do something. This all was one activity. That's when we talk about repentance, is actually making right what was wrong. It would not be enough if the first son went to the dad and was like, you know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. No, he needed to go and make right. He was ordered to go into the vineyard. Simply apologizing for not going into the vineyard doesn't fix the problem. And so the way Jesus has told the story is he's tied these tightly together that repenting, changing his mind, he went. They're the same thing. You gotta go make right what you didn't do right in the first place. Fourth observation, again, still on the first son. I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind. How much later? Jesus doesn't say. Did something happen that make him change his mind? Jesus doesn't say. 
Did he start feeling guilty because his dad's been so generous to him? Is that what motivated him? Did someone come and say something to him? Was he reminded of, hey, you know what? I need help with my stuff. I should go help my dad with his stuff, what he commands me. We don't know. Jesus just simply covers over the whole thing with the word later, which is a remarkably gracious act of God, which means that if you're here this morning and you have been disobeying God for 30 years, but today you decide to change your mind and go and do it right, guess how God will describe you? And later, she decided to obey. And later, he decided to obey. This is the grace and mercy of God. God is not interested in how many years. God is not interested in you feeling regret. Today, if you hear God's voice, if today you decide, you know what? I haven't been doing the thing I was asked to do. If today you decide to do it, Jesus will simply refer to it as later. Whether it was 30 seconds or 30 years. Later, they decided to do what was right. Fifth and final observation, and this has to do with the second son. Verse 30, then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. The word that got translated but here is a conjunction, but it tends to be a conjunction that almost everywhere else in the Bible we translate with the word and, not with the word but, meaning it's not really a contrastive conjunction. It's a connective one, which means you might hear this passage and think, oh, well, the second son had all the intentions of going and just got really busy and didn't get to it. It's like the dad stopped by the room and was like, I need you to go mow the lawn. And the son was like, oh, but I've got play practice or I've got homework that I'm doing or I'm busy doing other stuff and I meant to get to it, but I just didn't. That's not what's going on here. He says, I will, sir, and he did not go. These are the same activity, meaning this son had no intention of obeying his father from the beginning. That's why I think Jesus dresses it up with the word, sir. That this second son is trying to cover up his disobedience with respectful language. Oh, yes, father, but he has no intention of going. These observations are just supposed to help us think through this parable a little bit more deeply. But let's not miss the point that it's pretty simple what Jesus is saying. And I think the message to us this morning is also pretty simple. Which one of the two sons are you today? Now, I've already said there's no third option. So if you're like, well, I'm the third child who doesn't need to repent. That option doesn't exist. You're not here because you've been doing everything right from the beginning. There isn't anyone other than Jesus who is like that. So the question for each of us today is, which of the two boys are we? Which of the two sons are we today? God is very clear in his word. Husbands, sacrificially love your wives. And we gotta ask the question, which of the two sons are we? Are we the person who has been saying, yeah, no, I know you said to do that, but I've not been doing that. But today we're going to choose to repent and do that and do it differently? Then you're the first son. 
Or if you're like, yes, I've heard that, but I'm not going to do that because you don't understand what it's like to be married to this person, then you're the second son. The Bible is clear. Wives, submit to your husbands. If you hear that and think, yeah, that's been a struggle for me. I'm not good at that. I wish I was better. I want to do better at that. Then you're the first one. If you're like, yeah, no, that doesn't work in modern society and this doesn't understand how America works, I don't care that that's what God says. I'm gonna keep doing it this way. Then you're the second son. God says very clearly, honor your father and mother. If you decide today, you know what? I think the Lord is speaking to me. I've not been honoring my father and mother the way I ought to be. I'm leaving the sanctuary today and I'm gonna give my mom a call or I'm gonna give my dad a call or I'm gonna do something. You're the first son. If you hear honor your father and mother and you think, yeah, but you don't know what my father and my mother did to me or I don't know, then you're the second son. If you hear today God say, love your enemies, and you think, oh, I think he's talking to me. I gotta do something about that. And changing your mind about that person at work or at school or in your family or in your neighborhood that you've been wanting... or the window salesperson that you've been angry with, if you hear and you think, oh no, I gotta do that better, you're the first one. And if you hear love your enemies and you think, I will, just as soon as I'm done getting them back for what they did to me, then you're the second son. And Jesus has not left us a third option where we can go, oh no, I'm, I'm just fine. All of us here, He wouldn't have brought you here this morning if there wasn't something in which he was trying to encourage you. Be the first son. Or accept the fact that if you are being the first son, that God is commending you today. You don't need any regrets and you don't need any guilt. Accept the fact that you're the first son. Now you might ask the question, well, why? Why would someone want to be the first son? Of course, that's the, that's the one you want to be, but why? Well, that's why Jesus ends the parable with a couple of statements in verses 31 and 32. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. What does it mean that you are entering the kingdom of God ahead of others? Well, I've got an analogy that might explain this. And I want you to think about uh, being at uh, the grocery store. And if you're like me, when I time time to check out, I spend a little bit of time surveying the five or six open uh, checkout lanes to figure out which one is going to go the quickest. If that's not you, this analogy may not apply to you, but bear with me. If you're like me, I sort of look and I want to examine who seems to be the fastest cashier, which carts are in front of me that have the most stuff in them, and even after I choose, and we usually, if I've got kids with me, I'm like, you hold the place here, and I'm going to go check to see how line 14 is. Come on over here, and so just kind of like hold our, if you're like that, you're going to get this analogy, I hope. Even when I'm in the line, if I notice, well, that line's going faster. If I haven't already put my stuff on the conveyor, then I'm going to get out and get in that other line. If you resonate with that, here is the analogy. Okay, so you're in the grocery store, and you got to choose between two lines. Everybody in both lines 
has misread or misunderstood one of the sales at the store. And they thought they got the right item that was on sale, but they actually got the wrong one. Maybe it's the wrong size cereal box or whatever. You know, you're always, you show up there and the sign is over one. You're like, oh, this must be it. And it was that one over there. You're like, well, how was I supposed to know that? But imagine that everybody's got items that they think are supposed to be on sale, but actually aren't on sale. In one line are all of the people who refuse to accept that they might have gotten this wrong. They're the kind of person that says, no, you go send somebody back to go look at that, and everybody waits while you go and send someone back to look at the sale price. And even after they've been faced with definitive proof, no, this is the 16.5 ounce one, and you have the 45 ounce one, this doesn't apply. Even then, they spend their time berating the cashier for how bad the, the grocery store is and all of those things. That's line number one. In line two, you have all of the people who, when faced with proof that they got the sale wrong, simply say, oh, I'm sorry, I thought it was the other one, and then go on and pay full price. Which line do you want to get in? You don't want to get in the first line, right? Because you're going to be there forever. That's what Jesus means when he says they're entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. The reason you go through the grocery store is not to check out. The reason you go to the grocery store is to eat the groceries. And the longer it takes you to check out, the longer until you get home to eat the groceries. So if you're looking at the two lines, this line with the repentant people, that's the line that's going to get you through faster to experience the blessings of the grocery store. This is Jesus' point. If you and I, he says, look, there's two groups. There's the Pharisee kind of people, and when the Pharisees get in line, they argue with everybody about everything that God has to say. They're not getting through the line because the cashier and the computer system are not going to let you through with that sale price. And no matter how much you dig in your heels, and no matter how much you argue, and no matter how much you ask to see the manager, that's the price. And these Pharisees are arguing with God about what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. And he's saying, God loves us too much to let us through at the wrong price. He loves us too much to let us keep disobeying him. And he says, look, you and I can either be in a battle against God to try to disobey, or we can get in the line in which we acknowledge, you know what, I'm sorry. What do I need to pay? How do I make this right? And Jesus says, the reason you want to be in that line is because you get to experience the blessings of the kingdom of God. There are blessings to obedience. And the longer you and I put off experiencing those blessings, the longer we're going to miss what God is trying to do. So let me ask you a couple of questions. This morning, if you're currently engaged in sexual activity outside the bounds of monogamous heterosexual relationship, you've got a choice. It doesn't matter how long you have been engaged in sexual immorality. If today you decide, you know what, I'm going to stop fighting with God about this, I need to repent and start doing it right 
today you will begin to experience the blessings of God that go with that command. If this morning you've been engaged in, whether this weekend or thinking about the Super Bowl or whatever it may be, gambling with God's money, and you've come up with all sorts of rationalizations and watch why you're free to do with God's money what you want to do with God's money instead of the kinds of things he says we ought to do with his money. If today you want to spend all your time rationalizing why God is wrong and why you're okay, you're just going to stand in line waiting to experience the blessings of God and not experience those blessings. But if today you repent and decide, you know what, you're right. You're right, Lord, I need to do something different with this money. Today you'll begin to experience the blessings that come from obedience. If you're a person who struggles with swearing and with vulgar language at school or at work or somewhere else, but today you hear God saying to you, look, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. I've been patient, I am long-suffering, but I'm not going to simply let this go. If today you hear that and you're like, yes, I need to do something different, then today you will experience the blessings of God that come with obedience. You're like, well, you don't know how long I've been doing this. It doesn't matter. Later on, he decided to obey. And whether you've been doing this for a few months or years, it doesn't matter. If today you hear God saying to you, look, I said to submit to those who are in authority over you at work. If you decide, you know what, you've been a thorn in your boss's side for a long time. If today you think, I actually probably owe her an apology. I need to stop working against her and tomorrow when I go into work, I'm gonna start trying to help her get accomplished the things she wants for our team to do. Then you're that first son. Then you're gonna experience the blessings of God at work. Right now, you may be experiencing death at work. You're like, well, because I'm keep. You're fighting not with her, but with God. He's the one that gave the command. And you and I can dress it up in all sorts of nice language and say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, thank you for this. Yes, we're grateful for the job. But submit to the people who are in leadership there. And if today you choose to do that, you experience the blessings of God. If for years you've put off being baptized as a believer and you're like, I don't need to do that. Why do I have to get up in front of people? I don't need, I believe in my heart. Yeah, I hear all of that. It's a command. If today you change your mind and say, okay, Lord, here I am. You're gonna move through the line. You're gonna get on the grocery store and you're gonna experience the blessings of God. Now you might ask, well, what if I repent today from looking at stuff I shouldn't be looking at or gossiping about things I shouldn't be gossiping about or I, I try to be submissive, but then the next day it goes bad again? What if I don't actually, am not actually able to change my behavior? Well, if that's the case, we are talking about something bigger, which is sort of the enslaving power of sin. This passage is not really talking about that, but let me at least say this since I brought it up. If today you choose to repent of whatever the thing is, you can leave tomorrow up to God. This is how you begin to get out of enslaving sins. What Satan wants to tell you is, no, 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 you gotta, be, you gotta, you gotta make good choices for at least three or four years before we qualify you as being out. 
That is not what God says. He says today. If today you choose to repent and do something different, then you're okay. And yes, of course, in the grocery store analogy, at some point you go back to the grocery store the next week and you buy some more groceries and you and I will be faced with the same choice when we get to the front. Do you want to go through the repenting line or do you want to go through the fighting with God line? And if day after day, time after time, you keep choosing the repenting line, sin will have no power over you. And so please don't not repent because you're afraid about tomorrow or a month from now or a year from now. Jesus tells you this parable to say, if today you decide to repent, then you're that first son. You're the one that God commends. You will experience the blessings of the kingdom of God today. This is the power and the beauty and the blessing of repentance. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word. I pray for each of us, you would choose that thing that we need to obey you about. God, I pray for those who may be experiencing guilt or shame for years of disobedience. I pray today that they would see themselves in that first child and hear you tell their story as simply later they went and did the right thing. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank that you forget all of our, all of our sins. Lord, you delight to be merciful for those who are here this morning who are fighting so hard not to repent. Lord, would you overpower them with your kindness and your goodness? Would you shower your mercy upon them? And Lord, and may all of us experience the grace and the blessing that comes from repentance. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.